I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this word and the reminder that though we were slaves of sin, now we have become enslaved to you, a loving, gracious, kind, heavenly Father who desires for us to be holy just as you are holy. And now, Lord, we don't look at it as a burden. It is not drudgery for us to please you, to seek to please you, to know your will, to have wisdom from above, and then to carry it out. We ask, Lord, that you'll continue to keep our hearts that way and may our life be faithful to you in every way. Teach us, Lord, faithfulness, godliness, righteousness, and may we, as slaves to God, glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. The apostle has been arguing throughout this chapter, Romans 6, how we have to reject sin. We who are united to Christ must reject sin. It should have no place in our life. We should not be pampering it. We should not harbor it. We should not make justification for it. We cannot even make theological, biblical justification for it. There is no excuse to practice sin. There is no excuse for the presence of sin in our life. Whether that is within us saying, we have natural desires. I was born that way. This is just who I am. This is my personality. You can't judge me. You don't know my motives. So on. This is what people do to justify sin in their life or the origination of sin from within them to practice it. They also make excuses from the world. Well, everybody's doing it. If everybody's doing it, why is it wrong? Are you blaming everybody? Are you the only one right? Are you the only one perfect? Are you the one, only one holy? They compare the, the issue or the sinfulness of sin in comparison to what everybody else is doing to justify following everybody else. Just like Israel says, we want to be like the nations. We want to be like them. And then the third aspect of sin, which is not treated directly here in this passage, has to do with Satan. If we are not enslaved to God, we are actually enslaved to the devil. The devil is our master. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. That's the case. The world, the flesh, and the devil. In our chapter, Romans 6, he is primarily focused on the flesh. 
the old man. That's his concern here because we can't use Satan or society as excuses for our own personal sin. We cannot use Satan or society, the world, for our own sin. We have to own up to our own sin and reject it. So in reference to our own sin, he now proceeds on his analogy of slavery, which he has been treating throughout this whole chapter. He started using this in verse 6, slaves to sin. From verses 6 onward until the end of this chapter, he's been using this analogy, the human terms, that's what he means in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm using these basic fundamental analogies because of the weakness of your flesh. I can't say it in very abstract and lofty terms. I can't use those because then you'll be lost. You won't know what I'm talking about. But I'm using a basic fundamental human institution, a human uh, setup and administration, slavery. I speak like this because of the weakness of your flesh. The flesh is weak in that it cannot comprehend and it cannot grasp spiritual truth. The flesh only wants sin. It doesn't want Christ. The flesh wants sin. He says, because of the weakness of your flesh, I have to do this. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has to use this analogy because of the flesh in order for us to understand what he's talking about. Now, we might say, well, I don't know anything about slavery. I have not lived in slavery. Well, study history, read a history book, study current events, and know what is happening in many nations around the world, such as Cuba, China, African nations, Muslim nations, where slavery is still practiced. Modern slavery is still there. Just pay attention to current events, and we'll know what slavery is like. Also, even in our own nation, we can have a a taste of what slavery is by looking at where someone else is controlling the individual or the family or the church or private institutions. We have pockets of that throughout our own country where those who are lower are beholden in very many ways to those who are above them and is practically slavery, especially when the government has its filthy fingers in every part of our life. They are trying to control every part of our life, such as our light bulbs, our toilets, and everything else. They are controlling those things. They want to control. And even whether we put uh, a filthy cloth on our face, they are controlling everything. They want to control. They will always be that way. This is what slavery is. We know what it is. So in this way, back to the flesh, he says in verse 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. 
Now that we understand slavery, he reminds us that we were slaves to impurity or uncleanness, defilement, and lawlessness. The things we did, we know to be filthy, rotten, dirty. The things we used to do, right? We were slaves to those filthy, rotten, polluted things, correct? He also says it was lawlessness. We used to practice lawlessness. Today we call it antinomianism, anti-law, no law. I don't want any restrictions on my behavior, my values, my actions. I don't want any restrictions. Antinomianism against law. Lawlessness, as the apostle says it here in Romans 6.19. That's what people want. That's what our flesh wanted. This is what we did. We didn't want anybody telling us what to do. We wanted to do according to our own wisdom, according to our own whim. But what happened? It resulted in further lawlessness. Lawlessness breeds lawlessness. Once you let a little crack in the door, what will happen? The door will open wide, right? The camel's nose in the tent. When the camel is able to put its nose in the tent and there's something in the tent the camel wants, what does the camel end up doing? The whole body goes into the tent, right? And that's the same with sin. There is a little bit of sin that we tolerate, that we pamper, that we hide, that we refuse to confess and forsake. But then what does it do? It mushrooms, it balloons, and it leads to further lawlessness. So that's why whenever we sin a little bit, we have to identify it as sin and reject it because it will lead to further lawlessness. That's the way we used to be. We don't think that way anymore. We should not think that way anymore. If we think that way, we must repent. We must reject it, turn away from it. Verse 19, so now, what should we do now? Present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now, we are new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old things passed away, behold, all things have become new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We are new creatures in Christ because God renewed us, God gave us a new heart, so we are new creatures. If we are new creatures, we don't do things the old way, we do things the new way. According to the new heart, the new covenant, and the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And therefore, our members, he means every part of our body that we use to pursue our sins. Our ears, our eyes, our nose, our mouths, our hands, our feet. Whatever we do with our body, bodily parts. These members, they were slaves to sin, but now they are slaves to righteousness. Now, whatever we see, we want to have that as a way of pursuing godliness or righteousness. Whatever we hear, we want that to aid us in righteousness. Whatever we speak, we want to aid us in righteousness. Wherever we go with our feet, we want 
to aid us, help us along the way to pursue righteousness. We are slaves to righteousness. And remember, we do this with alacrity. We do it with diligence. We do it because we love to do it. We are enthusiastic about it, to be a slave to righteousness. That's the new attitude that we have. And it results in sanctification. If we present our members as slaves to righteousness, it results in sanctification. Sanctification means holiness or godliness. It results in that. If we pursue righteousness, then we have holiness. If we pursue unrighteousness or lawlessness, then we have sin, uncleanness, lawlessness, sanctification. That's what we need. How much do we need this sanctification? How important is it? Well, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 48, Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That completely eliminates, obliterates in one word when people say, well, nobody's perfect. Well, of course nobody's perfect, but that's not the point. The point is pursue perfection the Christian way, the Christological way, the way Christ taught us. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the real issue, not that nobody's perfect. Further, we're we're defining and explaining how important is sanctification. Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14. The scripture says, pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's how important sanctification is. If we don't have sanctification, then we will never see God. We will never see God in terms of His favor, to see His shining face, His countenance upon us. We won't see Him in that way on the day of judgment. But we're going to shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. 1 John 2, 28-29. That's what will happen. We will shrink away from Him in shame if we don't have sanctification. We must see the Lord. But if we're going to see Him, we first must have sanctification. He said, and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 20, Romans 6.20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. This is a a statement he has made, a similar statement in verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7, he says that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin, in the sense that when you have bondage to sin, you have bondage to sin. It is your master. That is what controls you. That's what dictates to you. That is your tyrant. You are a willing, well, willing subject to the tyranny of sin. That's what we are. So that's all we know. We don't know anything differently than that. That's what he means when he says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Righteousness was alien to you. 
It was foreign to you. It was a strange concept to you. It was something that was bitter. It was distasteful to you. You wanted nothing to do with it. You thought those people were wild and crazy. You thought those people were weird. You may have even called them cultic. That's what we think when we are slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. You wanted nothing to do with righteousness. That's the way it used to be. So it's either we are slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness, which he mentions being enslaved to God in verse 22. It's either one or the other. So now that we are in Christ, we're no longer slaves of sin. That is not our master. Christ is our master, and he is a a benevolent master. He's a kind master who is looking after our welfare in the true sense. He's not looking after us to beat us up and bruise us, tear us and tatter us. He's not doing that. He is kind to us because we have the salvation of our soul in his hand. But in 21, he reminds us of the way we used to be. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. What was our benefit? Momentary fun. Momentary pleasure. Fleeting fun. It was enjoyable then, but then it disappeared. It had no Satisfaction, it had no contentment, it had no peace. And because all of us have a conscience given to us by God, whenever we did sin and God pricked our conscience, we were ashamed. We felt guilt, right? We felt guilt, we were ashamed. Even now, even now, after knowing Christ, we don't like to think about the way we used to be, unless we think it in reference to Christ. But we don't like to think of the sins we used to commit. We're ashamed of those things. We don't like to think of them. We don't like to speak of them. We don't want people to know, right? We were ashamed. Not only did we have guilt and shame, but death. We had the sentence of death hanging over our head. Death, death, death. From Romans 1 and throughout this letter, through this chapter even, he keeps on saying, sin, death, sin, death, death, sin. Right? What's the benefit of death? There's no benefit. There's no benefit. So, being ashamed and producing death if we're thinking correctly about our life, that's the way it was. So if that's the way it was, why would anybody want to stay that way? Why would anybody want to live that way? No, we don't want to deal with guilt and shame, and we don't want to deal with the horror of death. Even if if we think about physical death, most people are terrified of physical death, right? And then think about spiritual death. When people are thinking rightly and they think about eternal punishment, eternal punishment, eternal torment, 
When we think about that, it is a horrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought, right? So, there's no benefit. There's no goodness in that. There's just dread. Only dread. So, give up sin. Verse 22. Verse 22. Now, the opposite in 22 to 23. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, the opposite benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Now that we are freed from sin, we are freed from the bondage to sin because we have a new heart, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we are also freed from the penalty of sin because we are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. No condemnation. So no penalty. These are the ways in which we are freed from sin. But we still have to daily reject it. We are not indulging in it. We're not practicing it. We're not loving it. We're not justifying it, saying, well, that's not a sin. You can't judge me. That's not a sin. We can't talk that way, think that way anymore. We have to consider it and then seek ways to reject it. That's what it means to be enslaved to God. Now, if we are enslaved to God, then we have no other master. Is that correct? In in human society... When a slave has a master, does he have two masters or three masters or five or ten or twenty masters? It doesn't work like that. He has only one master. Jesus said the same. Matthew six twenty-four. Matthew six twenty-four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and material possessions. No one can serve two masters. Here, mammon is a master, an undesirable master. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot. Is that clear? We understand what cannot means. It's impossible, we're unable, incapable of doing both. It has to be one or the other, either God or mammon. You want to be a slave to material possessions in this world? Or serve God, be a slave to God? Secondly, when we think of the word slavery, we have, from our context, from our upbringing, an absolute disdain for the word. Some of it has to do with our education. Some of it has to do with our families. Some of it has to do with our news sources. That slavery, in any sense of the word, is reprehensible. It's evil. And there is nothing good in that concept. That's not the way God thinks, though. He doesn't think that way. He doesn't even think that way for the believer, the Christian, the child of God. We might hear people deflect from this, reject and deflect from this by saying, 
No, no, Jesus called us friends. No, no, Jesus called us children. No, no, Jesus called us sheep, and so forth. But we're not slaves. No, no, we can't be slaves. Well, we are all of the above. All of the above have an element of truth that the Bible uses to compare our relationship to God. All of them do. And by the way, do we like to be called sheep? No. That's a, that's a, that actually is an offensive term, though people are more agreeable to that term. It's actually an offensive term that we are dumb sheep, because that's the way sheep are. Sheep are not like lions. Sheep are not like eagles. They're not like foxes. They're not like snakes. They're not even like dogs, whether a wild dog or a domestic dog. Sheep are not like that. They are dumb animals. So there is an aspect of every analogy. That's the point of an analogy. There are certain elements of the analogy that relate to our relationship to God. And slavery is one of them. It's right here in Romans 6, 22. It was there in Matthew 6, 24. It's throughout Scripture. We ought to be enslaved to God. Then, another aspect of being a slave to God. When people think of this, they want to run. They want to flee. They want to have nothing to do with God being our master. But why? Because inside their heart, they are insubordinate. They are disobedient. They are rebels. That's who they are. They are rogue. They want to do their own will. They have, today we call it anti-authoritarianism. People don't want to submit to authority. Children, younger children, don't want to respect their older siblings. Children don't want to respect their mothers and fathers. Then wives don't want to respect their husbands. Men don't want to respect their employers. Soldiers don't want to respect their commanders. Citizens don't want to respect their politicians, give them due respect in the proper way, and so on, right? People are anti-authoritarian by nature, but it must be rejected. It must be beaten down because here we are enslaved to God. But the greatest offense here of all of these relationships is when an individual says or thinks that if he were a slave to God, that he would run away from that, that he wants nothing to do with it. He looks at God, he has a conception of God that is so uh, distasteful, detestable to his thought that he wants nothing to do with it. Sometimes they admit it, sometimes they don't admit it. That really, when they are disobedient and unbelieving, their real enemy is God himself who created them. That's really the problem. Their real enemy is God, and they don't want to be enslaved to God. They want to kick and scream and run away from submission to the will of God. But what did John say? 
1 John 2.17. Actually, let's read 1 John 2.15-17. 1 John 2.15-17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever, remains forever. The one who does the will of God remains forever. Everything else is passing away, but when we do the will of God, the will of our Master, we abide forever. We must desire to do His will. This is one of the key characteristics of a converted individual. He used to be preoccupied, consumed, and enslaved to his own will. After conversion, he's always asking, what is the will of God? How can I know the will of God? What does the scripture say about this or that? They are always thinking about the will of God because the will of God now to them is wisdom. It's not foolishness to them anymore. It's now wisdom. And now their own will is foolishness and they want to submit subject themselves, be enslaved to the will of God because they know who God is. He's their father, redeemer, master. Now in verse 22, Romans 6, 22, being enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. There are benefits or consequences. That's the way in which he's using this word benefit consequences or results of sin in verse 21 or righteousness in verse 22. Slavery to sin in 21, slavery to God in verse 22. So the benefit in reference to God is sanctification. Sanctification. Then, since we have already discussed the need for sanctification in verse 19, resulting in sanctification, think about this result of sanctification. Don't we want to be guilt-free? Don't we want to avoid evil and have nothing to do with evil anymore for all eternity? Right? Who doesn't want to be, if he's thinking correctly, who doesn't want to be absent from, completely separated from, have nothing to do with the consequences of sin, evil, and death. That's what sanctification is. That is is paradise. Correct? The paradise lost by Adam and Eve is the paradise restored by Christ. So that in the age to come, in the age to come, we have sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Sanctification, so no more sin and eternal life. No more death. Only, only righteousness 
and eternal life. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 3 to 5. Revelation 21, 3 to 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, to, and he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. This is the promise for us. To be his people, have no more tears, no death, mourning, crying, or pain. All gone. Why? Because we are in Christ And being enslaved to God results in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Eternal life means the absence of those things in Revelation 21, 4. The absence of those things. Peace, tranquility, comfort, love forever. Remember, faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love, because love abides forever. Verse 23, verse 23, Romans 6.23 is a summary of the chapter. It's a summary of the chapter in contrast. This passage, this verse is often used in evangelism, but when it's used in evangelism, often the evangelist does not preach it, explain it in context. They often preach it as though It's a quick fix to a lost sinner. The quick fix is believe, say a prayer, write your name, raise your hand, and you'll have eternal life. That's the quick fix. But that's not the way it works. That's not the way it's presented in Romans 6. Certainly the result is eternal life, but there's more to it than just that. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin produces death. You want something from sin, you'll get it. That's the way the world works. And your wage will be death. Death, death, death. But if we're going to be delivered from death, we need the free gift of God. The free gift of God. Whether we call it the gift of God, as some translations do, or the free gift of God, in context, we know what the apostle means. He means that it's nothing that we deserve. It's nothing that we have earned. It is not a wage. It's not something that God is obligated to give to us. It is a gift, a free gift. Not earned, not deserved, not a wage, not a salary, not an obligation, not a duty, however we may see it or have learned it. It's not that way. And it's not that way because we were completely 
dead. We were unresponsive. We were unresponsive to spiritual things because we are spiritually dead. Those who are dead cannot receive a gift. This verse assumes Romans 9 and Romans 11. It assumes that God must change us from being dead to alive, give us the gift of faith so that we embrace eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how it works. It's a gift of God, eternal life. And where is this life, this eternal life? Who has it? Who's the only one that has it? Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's the only one. The Bible nowhere, absolutely nowhere from Genesis to Revelation, has even a hint of salvation outside of Christ, outside of faith in Christ. There's no hint of it whatsoever. It's only in Christ Jesus, our Lord, which means we must preach Him. We must preach His Word. That's what we need. We don't need to be preaching anyone else, any other religion, any other concepts, any other wisdom. We don't need anything more. We need Christ because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. That's what we need. So let's preach Christ. Preach him crucified. Preach the cross of Christ. Boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. Not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what we need. Everybody needs. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.